0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapters 15 through 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, of which are the last, for which with them the wrath of God is finished. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, Who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast. And worshiped his image. The second angel poured out of his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we discovered last week that we were out of parking up here. It was uh, an oversight on our part. So if you've been a visitor or a guest with us over the past few months, we apologize. God has continued to add to our number. We've continually grown. Um, Interestingly enough, we have about 100 more people that attend our missional communities than are here on Sunday morning, just to let you guys know that, uh, on an average Sunday morning. We are ministering to over, around over, just over 400 people every single week, and we try to figure out how many people are coming on Sunday and how many vehicles they had, and we had an elder look last week, and our parking lot was 100% full up here, and so we asked uh, some of you to park down by the pool, and I just wanted to let you know that the pool parking is full. <laughs> So thank you for that. Uh, we appreciate it. There's 20, I think 20 or 25 open spots out here. And so that's what we want. We want um, those who have a hard time getting in here, uh, the elderly, um, anyone with disability, any new person, we want to leave that, that front parking lot open for them. And let's just fill this parking up first so we can continue to grow. And we don't have to go to a second service as of yet. We're, <laughs> we're, yeah. All right. It's going to, yeah, we don't want to go to two services, but we know it's going to, it's inevitable. We have grown. We've, we've remodeled two cottages to take our kids over there to free up free space. We've got room for about a hundred kids over there. We're maxed out over there. Um, We only have so much parking and uh, we've planted a church. We've sent out 50 people to Moline to plant a church. God filled us right back up. And our goal is to plant another church in in, uh, 2020, Lord willing. Uh, But uh, until then, we're probably going to have to go to two services sometime. I don't know when, but uh, we're trying to do everything possible not to do that uh, until we absolutely have to. So thank you for parking at the pool. I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into it this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We would not know you unless you have revealed yourself to us. And you have revealed yourself to us through your word through your son, through creation, through our conscience. And we thank you for that. God, we confess with our mouth right now that we want to know you. We want to know you rightly, clearly, purely. We want to know the world rightly. We want to know how to live our life rightly. And we can only do that if we know your word. And so I pray this morning that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me that you would help us hear your word this morning, see you clearly this morning so that we could live our life rightly and worship to you. Father, this is for your glory this morning. In the name above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, your son, we pray. Amen. Well, if you'd open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 15 and chapter 16, this chapter begins like this. Then I saw another sign in heaven. That is code word for here we go again. All right. Then I saw another sign in heaven. If you've, if you've read the, the uh, book, little booklet that I wrote on Revelation, you know that Revelation is a series of visions that recapitulate one another. So Telling the same thing over and over, but in a more intense fashion as we move along. So today begins the fifth cycle of Revelation. So if you've you've been here and you're kind of like, this kind of seems a little bit repetitive. You're getting it. Yes, it is a little bit repetitive, except it gets a little more intense as we move towards the end of the book. So this here begins the fifth cycle today. And I want to do something a little different this morning. For the most part, the scripture that we had read for us this morning, it's rather clear and self-explanatory. At the end of time, God pours out his wrath on the earth and those who dwell in it. It's pretty clear what's going on here the great outpouring of his wrath results in either worship or revulsion. In our text this morning, those in heaven rejoice, they sing the song of Moses. Now that should remind us and bring us back to Exodus. And I've even talked about it earlier in the series of how all of the plagues and all of the the, the ways that the wrath of God gets poured out mirrors the plague in the book of Exodus. And here today, we see those in heaven singing the song of Moses, the song of redemption, the song of rescue, the song of God's wrath being poured out on his enemy and delivering them from slavery. You also see in a pretty... Exciting vision. You see an angel give his full hearted acquittal of God by declaring him just for pouring out his wrath. The angel looks at God pouring out his wrath and he says, Just are you, O Lord. They got what they deserve. Good for you, God. I'm glad you finally poured out your wrath. That's what the angel says. While the human beings here on this earth, or at least some of the human beings, They refuse, he pours out his wrath and they refuse over and over and over to repent and they, in their unrepentance, they end up assembling together to fight against God at the battle, at the end of times, the battle called Armageddon or at the place of Armageddon. Now that's what's going on in this chapter. What I want to do this morning is I want to ask you this question. Does the wrath of God bring you to worship or does it disgust you? Does it cause you to sing like those saints here in this text, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty. Or does it repulse you? For many, the wrath of God prevents them from believing in the God of the Bible. I get asked often, how could a loving God be a God of wrath? How could a God of love pour out such destruction on human beings and still be good? For many of us, the idea of a wrathful God seems archaic, unloving, and downright disgusting. Some today even conclude that the God of the Bible, therefore, is a moral monster. Well, I understand why you would feel that way. The wrath of God does seem incompatible with a loving God at first, at first look. But once you dig down into it and think a little bit more about it, it's not. In fact, the only hope for the world is the wrath of God. So this morning, I want to do three things. I want to answer three questions, basically. I got three points. Let me just say that. One, why God is a God of wrath. Two, why you want God to be a God of wrath. And three, how we should now live in light of the wrath of God. So that's where I'm going. Let's get after it. One, why God is a God of wrath? Well, listen, we are going to have to put our thinking caps on this morning a little bit. I'm going to uh, complicate things to make them simple, okay? That's where we're going. So buckle up. We're jumping in the deep end real quick here. God is a God of wrath because he is love. Now, let me unpack that for you. It's about to get real deep. God is not like us. Today's text says he's the almighty, the almighty, ultimate power. Nobody else has it. He's the holy one who is and who was. What both of these texts are getting at is he is altogether different from us. He is the creator. And then there is Creation. Now, listen. This is what I want you to see this morning. There are these are two different categories of being, and there are only two categories: the Creator and the creation. God is independent. We are, and all of creation is dependent. Acts seventeen verses twenty four through twenty five says it like this: The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Do you hear hear that? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, theologians call this God's independence. That's the modern term. Aseity is the old ancient archaic term, but independence is the modern term. And Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines God's independence this way. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. All right, now what am I getting at? I'm gonna go through a long quote From Wayne Grudem here, and we're going to break it down just a little bit. I want you to see why we need to understand God being independent from his creation. Many people overlap these things and they don't understand how different God is and what does it mean that God is independent, okay? Here we go, Wayne Grudem. God's being is also something totally unique. It is not just that God does not need the creation for anything, God could not need the creation for anything. Pause. If God needed anything from us, he would not be God. Okay? So God needs nothing. Keep going. The difference between the creature and the creator is is an immensely vast difference. For God exists in fundamentally different order of being. What does he mean by that? It is not just that we exist and God has always existed. It is also that God necessarily exists in an infinitely better, stronger, more excellent way. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a candle. Okay, do you see that? Sun and the candle, they're both the same thing, it's just one is more intense than the other. They're both creation. Okay, keep going more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop, more than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake, more than the difference between the universe and the room we are sitting in, God's being is qualitatively different. No limitation or imperfection in creation should be projected onto our thought of God. He is the creator, all else is creaturely. All else can pass away in an instant. He necessarily exists forever. God is qualitatively different. He exists, everything else exists because of him. Now, what that means is God is the only necessary being. If we cease to exist, nothing really changes that much. The world keeps spinning, businesses keep running, the economy keeps going, churches keep running. But if God were to cease to exist, nothing would go on. He is the only necessary being. Now what that means for us is that God himself, here it is. God himself is supremely valuable. He is the most valuable being in all of existence. He is The definition of worth. He is far more valuable, far more necessary, far more glorious than anything in creation. People are valuable because they're made in him as image, but they are not valuable the way that God is valuable. God is necessarily valuable. We can all affirm that. Hopefully we've progressed with me there. Okay, I get that. I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, he's, he's necessary. He's glorious. He's the definition of value and worth. Well, here's where things get interesting. Here's where we, get, we begin to trip up. I'm going to give you a quote by another long dead man, Henry Skugel. He says this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. What Schugel is saying is that you can tell a lot about a person by what they love, right? If a person loves evil, they're evil. If a person loves goodness, they're good. But obviously, living in this world, most of the time, it's not that simple, is it? Right? We've got our love is on a spectrum most of the time, and that's where we can get in problems, what is our necessary love? What is our chief love? If, so let me give you an example. I love hot dogs and I love my wife. But if I love hot dogs the same way that I love my wife, there's something wrong with me. My wife's worth and value far exceeds that of a hot dog. Therefore, it would, listen, it would be immoral of me to love these two things equally. It would be immoral of me to love a hot dog as much as I love my wife. It would be immoral. Do you hear what I'm saying there? It would be immoral to love a sport as much as I love my spouse. Now, how much more so if we take the source of all goodness, the source of all value, God himself? Now, I'm gonna use this in a different way now the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of his love. That is true even in regards to God himself. If God is the most valuable being in all of existence, if he is the sheer definition of excellence and brilliance and glory and worth and value, he must love himself more than anything else in creation. Now, the reason this isn't selfish or immoral or arrogant is because God is both independent, it means he's self-sufficient, and Trinitarian. We know love isn't love until it's loved something. If God can't be love without being having more than one, more than one in his persons because love isn't love until it's loved something and so that means God would not be loved until he created human beings and now that he has something to, to love he can love it now he can be loved that means God would be dependent on human beings to be loved he's not he's not dependent on anything he's independent God loves himself father son holy spirit exist in this trinitarian relationship of love that's been spinning and loving itself from before creation from eternity past. Now listen, what, what the good news of this is, some of us, oh, God loves himself more than he loves creation. Yeah, that means he's always happy. That means he never gets let down. That means the, each of them are always loving the other and always being loved. Happy all the time. That's the God of the Bible. In himself, Happy, not needing us to make him happy, not needing creation to make him happy, already happy, he's independent. Now, because of this truth, this is why one of our professions of faith around here, we often say this, I'm gonna put it up there. We affirm that God, our creator, has all life, glory, and goodness in and of himself. Because God delights in what is good, He delights in himself and the eternal beauty of his own perfections. He alone is the source of all true joy and delight. And so we profess that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Since God is love and all his will and all his character and all his actions are loving Listen, here it is. Since God is love and everything he is and everything he does is loving, anything that goes against him is an attack on love. Anything that goes against God's will is evil. It is an attack on love itself and it must be destroyed. God's action towards evil is wrath. The loving God responds to evil with wrath. So that is why God is a God of wrath. Secondly, why we all want God to be a God of wrath. First off, we need to get rid of our modern definition of wrath. Many of us think of wrath as being emotionally out of control. Flying into a rage, throwing something, or or having some kind of violent temper tantrum that hurts people unnecessarily. That's not the way God is wrathful. Did you ever think about this? God is independent, therefore, God cannot lose control. To lose control means your emotions are, you know, you're upset and you're angry and you're not getting something that you want, and so you have to react to it. That's not the way God is wrathful. God, the psalmist tells us, always does what pleases him. So God has ultimately self-control. He can't lose, he can't lose control. That's what it means to be the only sovereign God. He is always and forever in perfect and total control. He's never frustrated. Therefore, because of that, we need a better definition of wrath. Wrath isn't losing your cool, losing control, erupting something deep in you, taking over you, and then you lashing out and hurting someone. A.W. Tozer gives this definition of the wrath of God. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, And the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. Do you see that? God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. He hates wrongdoing. He hates sin. He hates evil. Like we hate cancer. See, we say, how could a loving God be wrathful? But the correct question is, how could a loving God not be wrathful? If God is love, and he loves himself above everything else, how could he not punish those who go against his will? To resist the will of God is to resist love itself. It's an act of evil. It's a violation. It's a degradation. Also, if God loves his creation, the earth and everything in it, including us, how could God not punish those who degrade and destroy it? If God just sat around and let people destroy and damage his creation and he never punished them for it, that would be the most unloving thing to do to his creation. It would in fact be unjust. If you love something, you are supposed to get angry at anything or anyone that attacks it or degrades it. I was driving last week. You don't see this too often in the Quad Cities. I'm behind one of those little minivan taxis. thinking, oh, there's a taxi in the Quad City. Okay. All of a sudden, I see the window roll down, and I see an entire McDonald's bag get thrown out the window. And I just went, what? Like, people still do that? Like, I remember being as a kid, right? You eat a candy wrapper, and you throw it out the window or whatever. You don't think anything of it. But now as we grow up, and we know, you know, everything going on with creation. We're like, we, we, we get. You don't litter. You don't do things like that. And just watch somebody roll down the window and a whole, I was just, oh! I was just <laughs> the audacity. Like, who does that? You know, you're going to get out. And wherever you get out, I guarantee you within 20 steps, there's going to be a garbage can. Right? Gas station, wherever you're going, just throw it out the window. Now, can you imagine being God? And seeing his creation being destroyed and just sitting back and going, eh. no big deal. If you love something, you get angry at anything or anyone that attacks it or degrades it. And that anger, often called righteous anger, is meant to motivate you and lead you to take action, right? Like, I love my wife and children. And if someone or something is trying to hurt them or kill them, the most loving thing I can do for my wife and kids in that moment is to move out in wrath towards whatever it is that is attacking them. How shameful if I just sat back and went, oh, hope it works out for you. No. This is why God's given me righteous anger and the ability to go on the offensive. If I were to just sit back and let bad things happen, I would not be loving my kids. Love is never love. It's unjust or unrighteous. Think about it. I want you to think about it this morning. Wrath is the love of God in action toward an object that degrades God's good creation. Wrath is God's movement towards cancer. Okay, when a surgeon goes after cancer, they're they're attacking it with like nuclear options most of the time. They're cutting it out, they're radiating it, they're attacking, they're on the offensive. That's what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is on the attack, it's on the offensive against anything that's evil. So I want you to see this morning, if God isn't wrathful, then evil deeds go unpunished. Evil people get away with their cruelty and destruction, and God's love becomes nothing more than indifference. I'm going to ask you again, how could a loving God allow evil to go unpunished? This is why the idea that there is no hell Or that God isn't a God of wrath is so horrific. I have many people tell me, I don't believe in a God of wrath. I believe in a God of love. You just don't understand what you're talking about. You can't have love without wrath. It means that people, listen, if you don't have hell and you don't have a wrathful God, it means that people can do the worst to God's creation and get no punishment. That means people can rape kill, steal, and oppress others, and their victims will never get justice. That means the universe is unjust. It's an awful thought. We all know down in our gut that the Hitlers, the Osama Bin Ladens, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world deserve something worse than annihilation, something worse than death. That's why we always we say, you know, there's a common saying, There's a special place in hell for people like that. What is that saying? We want people, evil people, to get what they deserve so that their victims can get justice. Now, this is one reason why the wrath of God is the hope of the world. In the end times, God's wrath is going to rid the world of everything that degrades and destroys. His wrath is going to give every person what they deserve. God's wrath is going to remove, like a surgeon who removes a cancer, God's wrath is going to remove every stain of sin from the earth, and then he's going to eternally punish every worker of rebellion, everyone who's causing that cancer and promoting that cancer. And once evil has been judged, God is going to create a new world where human beings can glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we will finally taste what God himself tastes, that eternal love that's going on between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll finally get a piece of that. We'll finally get to experience that. I mean, if you're in Christ now, you've tasted it in a very small way, but it's going to be undiluted. It's going to be 110 proof. When we get to heaven. So one, we've said, why is God a God of wrath? Two, why you should want God to be a God of wrath. And three, now, how should we now live in light of the wrath of God? I want us to have three. I got three practical considerations here. And guess what? I'm closing. Now I'm not going to say how long my closing is going to be. But I'm beginning. I'm beginning the end. It's the already and not yet of my sermon. <laughs> One, here's the three practical considerations I want us to have looking at God as a God of wrath. One, we should trust in Jesus, simple. Two, we should tell others the truth. I'll expand on that. Three, we should, we should forgive those who've hurt us. Let me unpack those. One, we should trust in Jesus. If if God's wrath is his settled disposition against everything that degrades and destroys, everything, God's settled disposition towards everything that degrades and destroys, we have to see, therefore, God's wrath is set against us. Have you hurt another person physically, emotionally? Then you've maligned God's creation. You've damaged it. Have you lied? Then you've brought evil into existence into God's good earth, God's good universe, God's good reality, God's economy. Have you disobeyed God? Then you've brought rebellion into his kingdom. If that's so, then like me, you are what's wrong with the world. God's love compels him to pour out his wrath on us for our rebellion John 3:16 we all know it for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life that's what we want right but if you read to the bottom of John 3 it says if anyone doesn't obey the son the wrath of God remains on him we're born under the wrath of God but here's the amazing news roughly 2000 years ago the son of God Left heaven, became a human man, and stood in the gap for you and I. He drank the cup of wrath, the cup of the wrath of God. He drank that cup in our place so that we could have the cup of friendship, the cup of family in the new family of God. It says, Scripture says that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. And if we put our faith in him and follow him, the wrath of God that was upon us, the wrath of God is removed from us. This is the gospel. Now, let me just tell you I'll get to the end of the sermon and wait for that. That's one trust Jesus, you're under the wrath of God. Trust Jesus and he will remove the wrath of God from you because he took your place under it. Jesus took your place under the wrath of God and experienced it and drank it to the full. And God's wrath is now satisfied. He's just now because he poured out his wrath on someone for your sins. Secondly, we should tell others the truth. There's a very modern way. So listen, two thousand years ago, when they read this text in their pre-modern mind, it made complete sense to them. God is totally different from us, and we've sinned against him. Therefore, God is still loving if he kills every person on the earth. That wouldn't. God is independently loving. He could kill. A, he could kill every. He could annihilate every single human being and still be loving because he's independent. The pre-modern mind understood that. The modern and the post-modern mind, we are infatuated with our own value. And you know what? It's a dichotomy. Because at one sense, we do not value human life at all. We've seen that this week with the ruling in New York that allows a baby to be murdered in his mother's womb one day before they're born. Evil, wicked, perverse. There's no other way to describe it. God's wrath is reserved for those who- who clap when the ruling came down. Disgusting. But in our minds, we have no problem killing children in their mother's womb, but once they're born, all of a sudden now, they're autonomous beings. They have infinite value. I, did, I did not, That's just preposterous that God could pour out his wrath on human beings. Disgust me. We stick up our nose at it. And so we read the text, and when we read this text, instead of being in awe at a holy God, we are disgusted by it, and we look at the people, we say, oh, poor humans, poor humans. How could a loving God do that? Do we see how often in this text they refuse to repent? They get angry at the wrath of God and hardened more and more and more in their rebellion infatuated with their own autonomy and and what their perceived independence. They don't need God. Are you kidding me? Whose air are you breathing? Whose food are you eating? Whose water are you drinking? You are dependent upon God for every thought that you have, every need that you have. You are dependent and we spend our lives rebelling against him and dreaming up a world that we are dependent or we're independent by ourselves. So what do we do? If we believe this, if we, so what, here's what it is. It's loving people more than we love God. It's having a higher value of human beings than we do of God. And if I have a higher value of human beings than I do of God, I can never tell them the truth. I read a text like this and go, that's offensive. Ooh, that's hurt. Ooh, ooh. I don't really believe in a God of wrath either. So yeah, just go on in your own life. Do what you want to do. Maybe at the end of time, you know, there'll be some kind of third third way that you can sneak around the wrath of God. It's just important for me to be a good neighbor and just keep things real cool. And so we're not gonna ever talk about the wrath of God. You can't love people rightly unless you love God supremely. If God's glory is the first in your imagination, then you can tell people the truth that we must flee the wrath of God for our many sins, and because I glorify God, and I see God in his glory greater than I see the glory of human beings, I can actually love human beings better, I can actually speak the truth to them, and tell them it's, in a sense, it's so simple, the son of God took your place, put your faith and trust in him, and live for him, nobody's loved you like that, The unvarnished truth of our text today is those who don't repent, quote, this is what the angel says. So when human beings, when modern human eyes look at this text, we go, how could God? When the angel looks at this text, he goes, they get what they deserve, bout time. Bout time. They've been killing Christians for, for a long time. They've been rebelling against you for a long time. They've been tarnishing your creation for a long time. They've been doing evil on this planet for a long time. And you let the weeds and the wheat grow together, but now it's time to harvest. Now it's time for you to be just. Now it's time for you to stand up and remove the world of its evil. And they say, they get what they deserve. God, you're just. They don't have eyes like us. Lastly, This is interesting. Because God is a God of wrath, we don't have to seek revenge against those who have hurt us in this life. Far from the wrath of God being some kind of cruel doctrine, it's the foundation for a just society. It's the foundation for a peaceful society. It's the foundation for tolerance itself. Let me show you this. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, so Christian, Never avenge yourself. Saying, don't seek revenge. Look, but leave it. Look, at leave it to what? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Christian, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, Christian, but overcome evil with good. Because I am sure that God will judge the wicked. I do not need to seek revenge. Now, I want you to see, this is the only way that we can believe in justice and yet allow ourselves in some situations to be victimized, to be hurt. I can look at the injustice of the world and I can fight against it. I can push against it. I can work for its removal. But when it's an injustice against me, I I don't have to seek revenge because I can say, Father, I know at the end of time, you are going to make all things right. You will delve out perfect justice The Hitlers, the Osama bin Ladens, the Jeff, Jeffrey Dahmer's, the murder whatever you go, they they will get what they deserve and so I don't have to make sure they get what they deserve right now. Listen, we are we're coming to the Lord's table this morning and is it it is important for us to search our hearts before we do? This Paul tells us, declares the Lord's death until he returns. Now, what, what, this meal is all about the wrath of God. This meal is all about the wrath of God. Now, it's, it's about the wrath of God in two ways. One, if you are in Christ When you come to this meal, you remember that the wrath of God was diverted from you and put on Jesus Christ. And it cost him his body and it cost him his blood. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And listen, when any Christian sins against you and hurts you, you remember the wrath of God. Oh, wait. Not only was my sin paid for on the cross, my Christian brother and sister, his sin was paid at the cross. So I don't have to punish my brother and sister. I don't have to push away from them or hurt them or lash out at them because God has already lashed out and poured out his wrath on them, on Jesus, on the cross. So I can forgive my brother and sister freely. Well, I want justice. Look to Jesus. He already died for them. You want justice? You want more justice than that? and you don't realize that you've been forgiven yourself by the work of Christ. Now, secondly, this meal is meant to remind us of the wrath of God. We have a dichotomy again here. We have the wrath of God is satisfied in Jesus, and yet the wrath of God continually is to be poured out on the earth right now for people who suppress the truth and will be poured out at the end of time. And verse 1 of chapter 15 tells us specifically that after this, the wrath of God gets poured out, the wrath of God is finished. So here's what's going on. The wrath of God is poured out and it's going to be poured out in two ways. One, on Christ, or two, at the end of time. And if you reject Christ, you're storing up the wrath of God for yourself at the end of time. So for the Christian, I want you to hear this. When you come to the table and you think about that, if a, Christ, if a non-Christian Sins against you. So if a Christian sins against you, you take it to the cross and say, Jesus paid for it there. I can forgive my brother. But if, a not, if somebody who doesn't believe sins against you, then you go to the judgment day. Then you say, Father, I, I don't understand this, but I trust that you will get justice. You are just, and your wrath will be poured out, and you'll make everything wrong come untrue at the end of time. And so as we come here this morning, I want us to search our hearts, Christian. Are you holding unforgiveness? Are you seeking revenge? Search your heart before you come. And as you come, say, Father, I take this grievance against my brother and sister, and I bring it to the cross, and I see that you paid for it. And if you're a Christian, you're coming and you're just suffering. You're just sick in your body. Things are going, like just things of the world are going against you. God is going to make all things right in the end. His wrath is assurance of that. Believe it this morning. And if you are not currently trusting in Jesus, I offer you the way out. I offer you the way out from the wrath of God. No other religion has this. You don't earn it, you receive it. Say, Christ, come into me. Put your faith and your trust in him. Father, I thank you for your son. He's not one option among many, he is the only way. He is truth and life itself. He's the only way to come to know you, he's the only way for the wrath of God to be diverted from us. I pray that Christians would embrace it and believe it and trust it and those who are resistant to you, that you would break their obstinate wills, humble them, soften their hard hearts, give them the mind of Christ where they can see how much you've done to love them. We worship you today in Christ's name,
1: amen.